So welcome everybody to today's episode of the Independent Teacher Podcast. And I am so pleased to be joined by Jen Sutherland-Miller. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. This is fun. And where are you based? Just tell our listeners where we're talking to each other from today. I live on Wolf Island in Ontario, Canada, which is part of the chain of islands called the Thousand Islands. Wow. I was born here in Canada, and I lived here more or less when we weren't traveling until I was about 17. And then I went to the States for university and ended up staying there for about 15 years. Um, and then we actually took off and traveled for about 13 years with our kids. Instead of, now we've settled back here in Canada to be back in the community that I grew up in, actually. So talking about your background, could you just take our listeners through a little bit about your own education and then what you've been up to since you graduated from university? Sure. Um, so I was I was born into a family of teachers. It's a, it's a multi-generational heritage in my family. And so our education is happening everywhere and all the time in our family. I also went to just about every kind of school. I went to Catholic schools, even though we weren't Catholic. I went to public schools. I went to um, private school in the United States for a while. My parents took us out of school for two winters and we traveled through Central America. So we were homeschooled or world schooled before it was before it was cool and popular. And those two years actually were the most interesting and, and best parts of my education, both intellectually in terms of what I learned, but also socially. And so that gave me a lot of confidence to do different things with my kids when they came along. I got my degree in education and um, very quickly realized that within the institutional education in the United States specifically, which is where I lived at the time, I wasn't interested in participating for myself and certainly, you know, not for my kids. I remember coming home before we had children and saying to my husband, I don't know what we're going to do if we have kids, but it can't be this, <laughs> which was quite demoralizing. You know, you put a lot of time and energy and heart. And I went into education because I believed in that. And I still do. Mm. Um, but then realizing that the system specifically where we were at that time was causing a lot of harm. And I just, I didn't want to participate in that. So then for a while, I worked with a program that taught sex education in the schools. And then I was administ an administrator on that team for a little while. And then as my kids were born, um, I was doing a lot of reading and researching and trying to figure out what it was that we did want to do, because knowing what you don't want, knowing what you do want are two very different things. Um, and that led us down a path of not putting our kids in school and homeschooling before it was easy or popular. You know, this was this was in the early 90s when there was not ubiquitous Internet and connectivity and Facebook groups and all of the ways to connect. Um, but we really wanted to do something more and different for our kids. And what that resulted in was us spending about 13 years traveling full time. So we sold our stuff and our, our house and our life in 2008. And we took off on bicycles. We thought we'd be gone one year from London, England, Africa and back on our bikes. And that turned into uh, more than a dozen years of full time travel on six continents and I don't know, 50 or 60 countries. And the world then became our kids classroom. And so in that you know, that was then at the rise of remote work, the rise of Facebook and the internet, we began to be connected to other people who were doing similar things. The concept of world schooling emerged. And um, I found that there were a lot of people like asking, reaching out and asking, wow, how do you, how do you do this? How do you create something different educationally for your kids? And so I've spent the last 25 years helping people create world-class educations for their kids outside the four walls of the classroom. Um, and most of those are really interesting, really unique hybrid solutions that are, you know, specific to the needs of a particular child or family. 
Um, and then I've worked with some, you know, some other organizations there that are helping people to do that. And it's something that I'm passionate about and I will probably do for my whole life because I believe that learning happens all the time and learning happens everywhere. Um, and it's not contained within any particular curriculum or classroom. Just take you back to what you said where you don't teach training. You felt it then wasn't for your children. It wasn't what you wanted. What did you see then and perhaps what do you see now? as the main problems of the education system in Canada, in, in the US? Because most of our audience will be from the UK. So it'd be right. really interesting to get a different perspective and to see if there sure. are similar problems. Yeah, you know, I, I haven't had any experience directly in UK schools or classrooms. I have friends, obviously, whose kids have. In Canada and the States, you know, my professional training was in the States. My experience in the classroom was in the States. The biggest problem that I see is the this one size fits all model of education. You know, kids become a, a cog in a system. You put raw material in one end, you get a consistent product out the other end. It's efficient in lots of ways and for lots of things, but it doesn't suit many of the children very well. I think my my off-the-cuff shot in the dark statistic on this is that I think maybe a third of the kids who are in school seem to be served really well by it. Mm. And then the other two thirds, you know, varying degrees of successful or not successful, but certainly not meeting all the needs they have. And one of the ways this becomes evident is that, you know, in the States and Canada, virtually everyone who has their kids in public school is also supplementing in some other way for their kids' education because the schools are not you know, are, are not enough for whatever the, the kids needs is. And, you know, I've observed also that anyone who learns slightly differently or is neurodivergent in some way or has emotional or social differences, um, those kids often are at a big disadvantage in those classrooms. And that's not a criticism of individual teachers or administrators. Every single person I know who works in the school systems is in it, you know, for the right reasons and their whole heart and soul is into it. But this, the system itself, um, I think, is, is set up in a way that is, is not conducive to learning in the modern era, certainly, and doesn't particularly prepare kids for the realities of the world as they exist right now today. How big are the classes in schools? Um, I probably am not a great person to answer that question right now because I haven't been in a classroom in many years. But when I was teaching, you know, at the middle school level, we would have 20 to 30 kids in a class. I've heard from people that, you know, even in kindergartens now, they sometimes have as many as 20 or 25 kids to a class with one teacher and one aide. And, you know, I, there's there's so much more that is possible in a tutorial method with a small group of students or one-on-one -on -one that, uh, you know, what we found and what many of the families that I worked with have found is that you can accomplish so much more, so much more quickly when you're just working with a couple of kids at a time, you know, there's not a lot of time wasted. And that was another piece that mattered to me. You know, there's an immense amount of time wasted in schools and that, you know, that looks one way on a chart, but those are people's lives, right? Those are children's lives that are being wasted one hour at a time. And I, I just didn't want to participate in that on either end, either for my kids or, or as a teacher. And is there too much emphasis on testing? Yeah, absolutely. The testing driving the curriculum is just a terrible idea. I mean, there's there's just no rational argument for that, in my opinion, <laughs> over the long haul of a student's life. I have four children. They didn't take one single standardized test ever in their childhoods. And they all got into their, their first choice of university or higher education without a problem. And that's one of the things I help people do is 
create ways and, and alternative paths to great schools um, without participating in those systems or participating in it on your terms very judiciously, depending on what it is that you want to accomplish. But the standardized testing mill is definitely damaging to kids and not conducive, I don't think, to actual learning. And you mentioned that your grown-up children. Yeah, they were all homeschooled, world-schooled from birth. Um, they all finished with what we would consider in North America traditional high school, somewhere between, I think our youngest was our youngest one was 15 or 16 when she was finished and, and 17 or 18. So they were done early by North American standards. But again, you know, it's not a race. We weren't interested in them being done early. We were interested in them self-directing into what was next and what they were interested in. Um, our oldest, who's 26 now, she graduated from Queen's University, which is the number three school in Canada with distinction in her program. She got a degree in geography, uh, but she is a web developer and programmer now, self-directed, you know, taught outside of the system, all of that, started her business when she was 16. Uh, and after she got her degree, which she followed because she loved geography and she was passionate about the subject, went back to her business to, you know, to make money for herself. And that's, that's how she supports herself, but she's passionate about geography and the world in general. Uh, and didn't take a standardized test to get into that university ever. My second son started his university work on a sailing ship crossing the Med in the Atlantic doing ocean research. And then he was, uh, all he's ever wanted to do are boats and marine life. So when he finished that program, he was accepted to the big maritime university in, in Eastern Canada. Um, but as we dug into that, we discovered that the degree paths that were there didn't suit what he wanted to do. And he said, mom, why would I spend four years and all of this money on something that when I graduate, I'm just going to have to reskill to do the thing that I want to do. The piece of paper isn't what's important. And I said, great, you know, if you can self-direct in that, and if you've got a, a different way to do that, go for it. But if you land back on my couch playing video games, we're going to have this conversation again. <laughs> because of the lifestyle that he had and the amount of self-direction that he had in his high school and elementary um, education, he was really successful at that. And he lives in, he's actually moving to South Carolina in the United States uh, next month. He's been working in the maritime industries. He's a boat builder and restorer of, of historic vessels um, and a captain and, you know, many other things. He's 24 and he loves it. He's been doing that work since he was about 18. Uh, our number three son went to George Brown in Toronto, which is a really great school. He's a chef. And he also is in maritime industries as well. He has two things that he's interested in. And he's graduated from, from his university work, but he's also still learning all the time. And in fact, he'll be over for dinner this evening. And then our youngest is 20. And his college plans were slowed down by COVID, as so many people his age were. Um, but he's passionate about flying planes. He started flying when he was 15. And he's now in commercial flight school. And that's all that he's wanted to do since he was 10 years old. So, yeah, he's got a probably year and a half, two years left on that. But you know, also self-directed into that program, was accepted right out of the gate with no tests required. Um, there are lots of ways to do that. And, you know, people get worried about high school and what happens when they graduate and yeah. what tests do they need to have and what if they don't have the right classes. And, you know, I know dozens and dozens, hundreds probably of students who we've encountered in our life outside of the system who've been really successful at getting into great schools and doing things they're really passionate about without having to fight through a lot of the stuff that you're told is mandatory. I know there's a big movement in the education system to try and make education more relevant. So more focus on collaboration, more focus on teamwork, more 
focus on developing entrepreneurial skills, but it's still within a standard education system that requires them to take examinations. I've sat in school meetings where they'll talk about this. Well, we need to make education more relevant. The problem with a group of teachers or administrators sitting and having that conversation is who decides what's relevant? The only person who can decide that is the learner. And so, you know, anytime we try to have those conversations and then impose on people what we think should be relevant for them, there's going to be a disconnect because every single kid, it's going to be different what's relevant for them. My four were wildly different in how they learned and what they wanted to learn. And unless you are engaging the student in that and, and not just engaging them, but putting them in the driver's seat of that process which is very hard to do within a system. If you have 300 kids in a building and everybody is self-directing, like I understand why the systems exist, but also there are ways to increase the amount of self-direction young people have. And I agree. I think if there's a if there's a thesis statement for reform in education, it's that learning must be relevant, but who decides what's relevant? The students have to. Mm-hmm. And so anything we design then needs to be focused around this idea of supporting their ability to self-direct into what is relevant for them and then finding them the resources that they need to to move forward in those ways. And how important do you think online learning is? Um, Well, kids learn all the time. They learn when they're online. They learn when they're offline. We as adults learn online. We learn offline. I think it's absolutely the future of education, but not to the exclusion of community level solutions either. You know, I think moving forward, one of the things that we may see emerging, we're seeing this emerge in the world schooling space are hubs that people can drop in and out of almost like co-working spaces for students that have a lot of the supplies and materials and 3D printers and stuff that they would want to engage with and interesting adults that they would want to engage with. And then really leveraging the online space as well. And I know people who are, I know a woman in Australia who's building a virtual world in which kids learn. Um, And there are just so many different ways to do that. But yeah, I like online learning is absolutely the future of education. COVID has demonstrated that it can be done. The schools did it kind of the worst possible way. That was a train wreck, at least in North America. I don't know how it was in the UK. It was awful here. But there are ways to do it and do it well. And we're seeing a rise in those kinds of things. So I I get excited about that because there are just tools that allow more kids to succeed in different ways. Yeah, yeah. And you can see that with adult learning as well. I want to talk to you about parents because I know in the UK, one of the biggest blocks to actually making any kind of change are actually the parents who believe that the children need to take exams. They need to be in school. They find it very difficult to move, you know, change and accept change in education that isn't about passing exams. And I would agree, almost always the roadblock to outside the box learning are the grownups. Kids already know how to do it. They're born to do it. They've been doing it. They intuitively get it. And when you say to them, like, okay, the world is your oyster. Go for it. What do you want to do? They figure that out. Um, the roadblock is parents. And, and my experience has been that their motivations are, without exception, love. And the fear that they exhibit and the, you know, this push that they have to make sure their kids take the tests and do well, it's because they, they have a, a great deal of skin in the game. They love these kids more than anything. They want them to be successful. And the only definition of success that we've had for the last several generations is this institutional form of schooling. And so it feels really scary to say, well, I'm not going to do that with my most precious things in the world. And I'm going to risk their future on stepping outside of this box when there's really no roadmap for this and we can't see the benefit or the, you know, we can't see the outcomes yet because 
there's just a few, you know, there's just a few thousand young people now who have uh, were on the front end of this crazy homeschooling idea that emerged out of the U.S. sort of 40 years ago, um, which actually has is how people have learned forever, right? Like it's the institutional system that's the experiment, not homeschooling. But that's another that's another whole topic too yes. to dive into with parents. But like they they just want their kids to succeed, right? And I think one of the things that that I work really hard with parents on is to show them examples of people who are wildly successful mm-hmm. and who have been wildly successful outside the system and to point out to them like, look, how much of your childhood education do you remember and use? Almost none of it. Were you excited when you graduated to be free from that and to be able to learn independently? Yes, you were. What are the most important things? Well, the most important things you have self-taught since you graduated. What would happen if we let five-year-olds, seven-year-olds, 10-year-olds do that and begin as they mean to go and pursue what is relevant to them. And yes, of course, we're gonna seed in all kinds of other things that might not occur to them. We're gonna introduce them to all sorts of different things. But once you understand that this is just how humans learn, we are self-directed in our learning as adults. For some reason, we've collectively decided that we have to impose this 12-year moratorium on trusting people to know how to learn and what to learn. Um, It becomes easier. And then when you, you you interact with young people who have been successful and are successful as young adults. And this is something that my daughter does a lot of is just showing up in the world schooling communities and saying, Hey, you know, we're not exhibit a of anything, but me and all of my friends who grew up like this, we're successful. We're doing fine. Nobody's living on their mom's couch. Your kids will be okay too. trust them. Um, those models are really important for people. And I think it'll get easier. I think it is getting easier. Maybe with COVID because people came, they had to bring their children out of school. Didn't didn't they? And they could see that perhaps yeah. there was a different way of educating yeah. their children and that particularly little ones were really yeah. developing when they were at home with mum and dad yeah. on a one-to-one basis. Yeah. That seems to have had to open some people's eyes to a different, different way of doing things. It's interesting there what you say, though, risk. I was talking to a friend of mine and I said I was talking to you today and she said, that sounds really, really, really interesting. And she's got a little five-year-old. I don't think I could do that. I just don't think I could take the risk. Parents, moms specifically, I think, have been brainwashed to believe that they cannot do this. They cannot be trusted to raise their own kids. But you know, the, when people, like with your friend with the five-year-old, I would say to her, well, how did your kid learn to walk? How did they learn to use a fork and knife? How did they learn to use the toilet? And like you taught them everything that they, everything that they know right now. Mm. And in terms of, I, I couldn't take that risk. Well, you just teach them the next thing at every stage. What she said is that she felt, oh God, I'd have to do lots of research. I'd have to go on the internet. I'd have to get the curriculum that they would be following in schools. That's a great point because a lot of people do think that homeschooling is replicating school at home. And that's, in my opinion, that's like the worst possible way to do it. Because if you don't want that education for your child, why would you replicate that at home? That makes zero sense whatsoever. And and she is right in that you do have to put time into thinking about, well, what is my philosophy of education? What do I actually want here? If not that, then what? And that's like, that's the piece that I work with families on first. And, you know, I do these boot camps where people come in in two days, we, we take them from what is your educational philosophy to here's what you do to get them into college or the whole thing. And people get frustrated with me up front because the first couple of hours is not about your kid or how to deal with them. It's about the inside of your own head. Hmm. Because until you understand that piece of it, 
then the temptation is to buy third grade in a box and try to jam your kid into it. Well, that's just terrible. Everyone's going to fight. It's not going to go well. Big sections of it aren't going to work. It's expensive. It's a waste of everybody's time, money, and energy. Everyone cries. Like, no. For some kids, that's great. They want third grade in a box. Amazing. But really be sure that that's your kid before you spend the money on it. And if it's not, then there are a myriad of other options that are out there. But building parents' confidence to know, like, right, this is what I want to accomplish. This is who I want my kid to be in 20 years. And then back that up to what does that mean when they're four, five, six, 10, 12? Let me ask you this then. Is there a particular class of parents that are coming to you and asking you about educating their children in a different way to the one that we've been used to? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, homeschooling in the States and Canada definitely started as a a middle-class experiment because the reality is that there is a degree of privilege tied up in having the time, the energy, the money, the resources to homeschool your kids. Now, there that is changing, and I'm really glad to see that changing, and technology is one of the things that has changed it, absolutely. Um, but yes, it definitely started as a primarily white, middle-class phenomenon. And there are a number of women who are really working hard at this. Camille Kirksey is one of them. Akila Richards, uh, she wrote a number of books about unschooling, um, as as decolonization and as libera- liberation work. So it's growing in other segments of the population. But yeah, like that's been a big problem. And it's one of the reasons that decolonizing education is such a big deal and is so important, creating space for more voices and more stories to be tell, told, elevating the voices that have not traditionally been told, given platforms and have actually been, you know, subjugated in terms of what we tell in stories and history. That's been a big discussion in the States. And actually the schools are botching it Terribly. Like there have been some awful things past. I'm sure you've heard where there's been massive censorship of, of any of the narratives that don't fit the white middle-class traditional American narrative. It's another reason, in my opinion, to get your kids out of school. You know, anytime they start censoring what it is that your kids can, can learn and the stories that can be told, that's really a dangerous thing. Has there not been any movement to try and change the curriculum within schools? Because that's certainly happening in the UK with the Black Lives Matter. And it came from the children who actually complained yeah. about there, the history there have of been, the literature. There have been, but they're, they're experiencing major pushback from the adults and from the structures. Right. You know, loads of books in in Pennsylvania were banned because they talked about race. They talked about gender identities. They talked about, you know, different family structures. There were loads of things that were banned by the school boards, even though the kids were campaigning and marching out of classes to get these books back in. Um, There in the state specifically, there's a real pushback right now against diversity in a lot of places, not everywhere but in a lot of places. And I encourage parents to really dig into that if they choose to put their kids in school, really look into that. Look at the curriculum, look at who's making the choices around the curriculum and look at the kinds of books that they allow or don't allow. I mean, there are, there are things that are just being removed wholesale from school libraries in the States, which is horrifying. Um, the Howard Zinn Project is a great place for people to start if they're looking for a well-rounded, multi-voice um, set of books and stories and, and things to use. It's not a curriculum per se, but he's got a lot of resources for adults and children um, to expand the voices in education. And what about in Canada in terms of decolonizing the curriculum? You know, 
Canadians, we like to we like to say, oh, well, we're better than our neighbors to the south. You know, we just like to just be a little less uh, <laughs> less in the mud, I guess, with them. But the reality is that we have our own whole set of issues. I'm sure you've heard the, the controversy and just the horror of the residential schools and the things that, that we've been dealing with here. Um, racism absolutely exists here. Discrimination against indigenous people, people of color. Um, people who are neurodivergent, people with disabilities. It absolutely happens here as well. Uh, our law structure is set up a little bit differently, but you know, I, I tell people we're sort of five to 10 years behind the US. We need to get off of our high horse. And parents everywhere, whether their kids are in school or not, need to be actively working to increase the diversity of voices in their kids' education, because otherwise the default is and has been, specifically in North America, middle-class white. And that's a real problem. As we get to the end of this wonderful conversation, I have to take you back to your younger self, maybe Jen aged 18. What would three pieces of advice be that you would give to your younger self? Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, it's the message that I, I try to give to all kids. Like you can trust yourself. We have within us what we need to move forward, to trust our own judgment, to learn forward. Um, the second would be to walk with courage. You know, there are a lot of things in life that are scary and that are hard, that are difficult to get through. Um, courage is key. You know, it's really hard to accomplish anything in life without courage. And then to surround yourself with the kinds of people who you want to influence your life. You know, we, we talk to our kids a lot about how the friend groups you have form you. That doesn't change as you become an adult. And, you know, one of the most fun things for me is meeting new people like yourself, people reach out, building networks, connecting people with ideas and other people who might be doing something similar or wildly different that they can they can work on and collaborate together because I really believe in community, specifically for education. And that can be an online community, that can be an in-person community, it can be a multi-generational community. It means a lot of things, but community, courage, and trusting yourself you know, to me, those three things are, are pillars of, of finding your way forward and defining success in whatever way you define it for yourself. Wonderful. A wonderful way to end our podcast conversation. <laughs> Thank you, Susan. This has been a lot of fun. I hope we can yeah. continue to collaborate. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. Thank you ever so much. You're welcome. Take care. Thank you. You have been listening to the Independent Teacher Podcast with me, your host, Susan Pallister. If you like listening to this podcast, please consider giving us a five-star rating either on Spotify or Apple Podcasts.